You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. my pleasure this morning to introduce our special guest speaker. This is Dr. Tammy Schneider from Claremont University, right down the street here. Come on down. Uh, Tammy, welcome. Yeah, welcome. A short list of your credentials, I think, is appropriate. All right, so uh, Dr. Schneider holds a PhD in ancient history from the University of Pennsylvania, a BA in Hebrew language and, and literature, University of Minnesota. I took Hebrew in seminary, actually, and I forgot it all. Uh, if, you, if you don't use it, you'll lose it, as they say. It took Greek to forgive me. Let's not make this about me this morning. Um, I'll bring that up later. Oh, gosh. Preach, preach. All right, Dr. Schneider is a professor of religion at Claremont Graduate University. Her research draws together the varied fields of archaeology, Assyriology, the study of Assyria. Uh, No, yes, I'm actually teaching Akkadian next semester. Akkadian next semester, okay. And you're pointing to Leland when you say that, okay. We better do good, buddy. And uh, so the varied fields of archaeology, Assyriology, and biblical studies in an effort to understand the ancient Near East, especially the interactions among various peoples. She teaches ancient Near Eastern history, literature, archaeology and religion, and women in the Hebrew Bible. Very appropriate to have her here today. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here, and I'll get your podium. Great, thanks. Thank you. Um, Thank you for um, what you just read. Um, So I'm sobbing now, so um, I apologize. Um, I'm a crier. Um, so, um, I want to begin by wishing Happy Mother's Day to all of you, um, for whom that is relevant. Uh, I am both a daughter and a mother of daughters, and both matters, uh, both matter in terms of how I view what I'm talking about today, and how that has influenced what and how I view biblical characters. It is also the case that despite having been trained in secular institutions, thank you, um, and um, uh, for all of my degrees, um, and I teach in one now, the fact that I am a Jewish woman teaching primarily white Protestant Christians and mostly male, nothing personal, some of my best friends are you guys, um, about the Old Testament and or Hebrew Bible, um, it has not gone unnoticed. Luckily for today, I am pretty sure that that's actually why I am here. Today, I am going to talk about the biblical characters of Sarah and by extension, Hagar, because that's how I do everything, is it's easier to just talk about a character in a text and then move on. Um, uh, and I have a book on her, and so Sarah's, Sarah's my girl. Um, and so I'm gonna start on Sarah and how, um, from studying her, um, I learned that even when different religious groups discuss the same characters, oftentimes, um, Uh, Let me start that again. So, when different religious groups discuss the same characters, the role of one scripture, um, the role that one scripture plays for their group will govern that character, oftentimes without even realizing it. In other words, often when we are talking about the exact same thing, we are talking past each other because of how we view the book in which that character appears. And that is on multiple levels as well. 
Today, I will go over the story of Hagar, of Sarah. Uh, say, I'm not even reading what I wrote. Uh, today, I will go over the story of Sarah, including Hagar and others, from um, my, for today, Jewish perspective, and then unpack why and how Sarah and Hagar may appear differently for other groups. I do this because I'm a rule follower, and um, Aaron told me today that I am speaking, quote, um, in a series from May to June on feminist readings of Christianity and different religions, and um, his hope is to feature a variety of feminist voices different from, uh, from different traditions, and um, so I am going to use that today. Um, just as an FYI, I didn't realize this weekend that I picked um, to speak on Mother's Day, um, but, uh, oh, oops, uh, my kids get it. Okay, so, um, but Rukaya was smarter than I. Um, all right. It's okay, she usually is. Um, uh, a few more introductory comments. I will read uh, my comments today, not because I am not comfortable with the material, but because I am so comfortable with the material that you guys want to have lunch today. Um, so uh, I could talk without a beginning, middle, and end, as Leland well knows. Uh, secondly, um, I don't refer to the G word. Um, that would be God. Uh, not because I want to offend anyone, but to keep from offending anyone. Everyone has their own notion of who and what that entity is, and the relationship of anyone's notion um, to that um, or to the text that I will be discussing is complex. And so rather than refer to that character as they appear in the Hebrew Bible, um, I don't want to confuse it with your own notion of who that is, so I refer to the deity or the Israelite deity when we're talking about the Hebrew Bible and when we get to the New Testament, which, yeah, Leland, I'm talking about the New Testament today. Um, I'll, I'll navigate that. Finally, when I talk about interreligious issues, I am often rather straightforward. Subtlety is not my strong suit. Um, I don't mean to offend or be rude. I just want to be clear. Okay, so... Slightly after my arrival in Claremont <coughs> six years ago, I was asked by the Orange County, you guys don't need to know how old I am, uh, I was asked by the Orange County Jewish Feminist Institute to teach a class on women in the Bible. And by the way, I still work with them uh, four times a year. We get together and read Bible together. Um, it seemed an easy um, enough task, and I said yes, and then had to come up with the class. Um, which is never as easy as it sounds. I was having breakfast with my friend and colleague, Karen Jo Torgerson, best known for her book, When Women Were Priests. And she asked which women I was covering. And I said, well, I'm gonna start with Sarah because she's so strong and great. And Karen's response was something along the lines of, Sarah, strong? Not only is she weak and deferential to men, but she's not very nice. Hmm. <laughs> Clearly there was a disconnect, um, and it took a few classes and a few books, and I'm, I'm working on it. So, uh, today I'm going to review my understanding of Sarah's story and why I originally wanted to teach her and continue to work on her character. Sarah's story begins in Mesopotamia, and uh, my specializations are um, the Levant and Mesopotamia, so she's my girl. Um, and so her story begins in Mesopotamia, and um, where she is highlighted as basically having no family and barren, Genesis 11, 19, and 20. And I'm going to throw out the verse numbers um, just in case anybody wants to follow up. I don't see anybody writing them down, but I'm going to stick to it. Um, and I never make a comment about a character, male or female, um, without data to back it up. I'm a data girl, um, and I will have a, a text reference if you need it. 
Okay, um, so she is described as barren and no family, and the barren part's a problem since in a few verses, Abraham, and Abraham and Sarah's names start out Avram and Sarai, and then they get switched in chapter 17, and it's way too complicated for me to go switching back and forth, so they're Abraham and Sarah, it changes in chapter 17, trust me. Um, so. Um, a few verses later, Abraham is told to leave where he is and go elsewhere because the deity is going to make his name great, technically big. And a few verses after that, the deity gives land to Abraham's children in 12.7, who he happens to not have and with a barren wife is unlikely to have any, at least through her. I, it's okay, Theo, we're gonna get to it, I promise. So, after receiving land for his children, the first thing Abraham does is to leave town going to Egypt where he explains to his wife that because of her beauty, appearing as his wife will be problematic for him, so she should say they are siblings, so it will go well for Abraham. And thus far in the story, despite presenting information about Abraham's family way back in chapter 11, no biological relationship between the two is suggested. Not clear what or if she says anything, but Sarah's beauty is noticed by um, Pharaoh's men, she is taken into Pharaoh's house, dare I say harem, and um, who knows what happens there, but likely something does. Abraham has no exit strategy, um, becomes wealthy because of her, but the deity plagues, and yes, it's the same word that's gonna appear in the book of Exodus, um, plagues um, Pharaoh on account of Sarah. This is 1217. Pharaoh learns that um, they are married, becomes livid, for obvious reasons, sends Abraham away, but now Abraham is very wealthy. Please note that thus far, Sarah has been passed around like a pawn by Abraham, has never spoken, and has taken no actions. After Abraham gives half of the land to his nephew Lot in chapter 13, who according to 12.1 probably shouldn't even be with them, Abraham complains to the deity that he doesn't have a child, so what is the point of giving him anything at all? And the deity explains that like the stars, uh, Abraham will have so many offspring, he will not be able to count them. Note that, it, um, that in this case, the deity does not mention who will be the mother of the heir, which sets up the next chapter where Sarah actually takes action. So, Sarah is a woman with, according to the text thus far, no family other than her husband. Her husband has a job whose payment is to his children, who he does not have because she is barren. Since her spouse has already given her away, possibly for sexual purposes, because he claims her beauty puts him at risk to the ruler of a foreign land, I argue she might feel that her job security is at risk, um, as is the possibility of the deity's promise coming to fruition. Um, and if you notice, I'm a little upset with Abraham. Um, I am, it's a me too moment after all. Um, and he's not uh, faring well for me. So, um, but we can talk about that later. So Sarah suggests that Abraham sleep with, her, with Sarah's Egyptian um, slave. And remember, this is likely what was done to Sarah in Egypt. And remember what is going to happen to Abraham's descendants in the book of Exodus. So she gives her um, slave, and she's the kind of a slave um, that might, by definition of the term, there are a bunch of different words for female slaves, it might be the kind of term that um, means that they will be used for sexual purposes. Sarah admits that her reasoning is to be built up by this. It's a play on words in Hebrew. 
Abraham does not argue with her. Um, she says, go sleep with her, and he's like, okay. Um, and it is not clear from the Hebrew, though it is very straightforward in English translations, whether he actually marries her or just has sex with her. In my argument, Sarah, who brings the deity into the conversation, she actually brings and says, you know, let J, yod hey vav hey, Adonai, whatever you want to call that, um, decide. Sarah is trying to make happen what the deity suggests is going to happen. Namely, Abraham has to have a son, and Sarah has thus far been able to do it. She is following ancient Near Eastern custom. We have women doing this all over the ancient Near East in a bunch of different periods. And she is not treating her slave any worse than she was treated by her husband in Egypt. Note, too, that later, Rachel and Leah will both give their slaves to their husbands, um, and those women's children are treated as sons of Jacob and of the slaves and of the women who own them. Thus, the fact that Sarah might actually benefit from this, since her job security is at great risk, I argue does not make her a monster. Things do not go quite as planned. Let's be clear, they never do. Hagar becomes pregnant, and she does something to Sarah. Here we have another case where the Hebrew is less clear than all the English translations suggest. Um, and if you've noticed my drumbeat here about translation, as soon as you translate, you interpret. And um, especially when it comes to issues with women and their titles, um, even on Mother's Day or especially, I'm gonna say, misogynist notions creep into the translations, right? And so you've got misogynist notions functioning even when people don't realize that that's what's going on because it's in the English. And if, if English was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me, right? Um, it's, <laughs> It's, it's out there, it's a thing. Okay, basically what Hagar does to Sarah is what the deity suggests in Genesis 12, three, that the deity will do to someone, if someone will do it to Abraham. So in um, Genesis 12, three, it says, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, but that's not what it really says. It really says, I will bless those who bless, the, bless you, and those of you who do this thing that Hagar just did, I'm gonna destroy ultimately, right? Like thoroughly obliterate, right? So the English translation back in chapter 12 is bad, and then in 16, it's even worse. All right, so when Sarah brings the deity into the conversation, who has thus far been on her side, even though they've never conversed, Abraham abandons Hagar and gives her to Sarah's hand. Sarah here abuses Hagar, probably even physically, who runs away and has her own conversation with the deity in the desert. Um, since the main focus here is on Sarah, I'm gonna say in this context that Hagar is mistreated by everybody in the text. Sarah, Abraham, and even the deity. When the deity does do things for Hagar, it is always for her son, and she has to be saved, usually only as a means of protecting him. In the next chapter, the deity changes the names of both Abraham and Sarah. It is also in chapter 17 that the deity states categorically that Sarah will be the mother of nations, that's the name of one of my books, and it is through her and her son that the covenant will pass. This is 1716. Note that Abraham's first response to hearing that Sarah will uh, bear him a son is to literally fall on his face laughing, wondering if this can happen because of their age. Again, it's not usually translated that way, but that's actually what the Hebrew says. In, this, uh, in his next comment, Abraham recommends Ishmael. The deity says that Ishmael will be fine, but the covenant will be with Isaac. Despite the clarity of the deity's suggestion, in the next chapter, the deity must send messengers to Abraham, apparently because he hasn't mentioned the news um, of Genesis 17 to um, 
to Sarah, because when they show up to tell Sarah um, that she is going to have a child, it's news to her. In fact, she laughs inside to herself because, as she comments, am I to have delight? And it's, again, usually sexual, and I swear to you, I am not a pervert. This is in the Hebrew Bible. I am not making this up. Okay, so she says, am I to have delight, i.e. sex, and with my husband so old? This is Genesis 18.12, and this is going to become important later. Thus, Sarah exhibits no resentment that her husband did not tell her because guys don't do that all the time, right? It's Mother's Day, I can say this. Um, anguish about giving birth um, so late, only excitement. Later, Sarah is asked why she laughed, questioning the role of the deity. But Sarah does not question the deity, and the speaker suggesting she lied is not stated in the text. Most assume it is the deity reprimanding her, but I argue that she has no reason to fear the Israelite deity who has just suggested she is going to get what she wants, but that what, who she has every reason to fear is her husband, Abraham, who did not even pass the information onto her. Proof that Sarah has everything to fear from Abraham is that rather than sleep with her, right, in order to have the baby part, um, he takes her to another foreign kingdom, and this time he himself claims that she is his sister, so that she is taken by a former uh, foreign king, Abimelech, which is known in English as Abimelech, but I can't say that regularly. So, King Abimelech does not touch her, but the deity comes to him in a dream where he pleads his innocence, not knowing she is married. It is also clear that though he had not touched her sexually yet, it was just a matter of time until he would do so. Uh, Genesis 20. Abimelech gives Sarah back to Abraham, and Abraham prays for the women in Abimelech's household because the deity had closed all of their wombs because of Sarah. Immediately thereafter, Sarah too becomes pregnant with Isaac. Within the space of six verses, the deity remembers Sarah. She conceives, bears a child, names him, nurses him, and Sarah claims the deity has brought her laughter, which is something I hope all of our children bring to us today. Again, we have a woman who late in life receives what she wants after having done what was asked of her for a very long time, and all she expresses is joy about it. In the next chapter, things become complicated. At the weaning festival, Sarah sees something, and the nature of what she sees is the root of debate. English translations, again, they're always really clear, even if the Hebrew is not, suggest that she saw Ishmael playing with her son Isaac, and so the debate rages between was he sexually molesting Isaac, or is Sarah annoyed that they are actually together at all? Much of how one views Sarah's actions depends on what she does. It just so happens that the word is from the same root as Isaac's name, so he was Isaacing Isaac. Um, and the next time someone does it, it is Isaac doing it to Rebekah, which leads the king of Gerar, also named Abimelech, um, to know that Isaac and Rebekah are married. In fact, some translations suggest fondle rather than play with her. Further complicating what Sarah sees is the fact that in the next verse, she argues um, that Abraham, quote, cast out that slave woman and her son, for the son of that slave shall not share in the inheritance with my son Isaac, Genesis 21.10. Suggesting this is an inheritance issue and has nothing to do with what was actually happening between the two boys. Despite how horrendous what she is asking appears, it is in line with what the deity has suggested in chapter 17 that Isaac would inherit. The, um, um, a few verses later, the deity tells Abraham to listen to her, 
the deity always tells men to listen to the women, by the way. Um, to her, re it's good advice. Um, it is through Isaac the inheritance will flow and that the deity will care for Ishmael. Uh, ironically enough, Sarah's demand is the act that frees Hagar. In fact, while Sarah does not live to see Isaac married, um, when he does marry Rebecca, um, this text states that he finds comfort from his mother's death, so at least Isaac loved his mother. Um, but Hagar gets to choose a wife for her son, and she chooses an Egyptian. And come on, who wouldn't love to pick their children's spouse? Come on, all of you mothers out there, we know better. Um, we don't get to though, except for Hagar. So, if I am correct in arguing that Sarah is a woman mistreated by her husband and spends her life fighting for a child that the deity claims must happen to fulfill the promise, and that she is not a bitter, angry woman despite everything, and is a great mom who actually frees her slave, why would Karen Jo Torgeson claim her weak and mean? That's an easy part, the New Testament. First, some terminology. I've been referring to the Hebrew Bible all along because that is how I think of it, both as a scholar and as a Jewish person. The field of biblical studies in most places have specialists in Hebrew Bible or New Testament. There are some who do both, but in terms of scholarship, people tend to specialize, right? Everyone's a specialist these days, um, in one or the other for some good reasons. The two collections were written for different purposes at different times in different languages to serve originally different communities and have a different focus. Most of the Hebrew Bible was originally written in Hebrew, a little Aramaic still in there. Some of the texts were already translated by the second century BCE, before Common Era, are a collection that are grouped in their Hebrew Bible form to serve a Jewish theological perspective, namely it begins and ends in Mesopotamia, um, and it serves a number of ritual functions. Referring to the Old Testament suggests a completely different orientation. The Old Testament assumes that there is a sequel, and in Christianity, the sequel trumps the original. The Old Testament was translated into Greek in the second and third centuries BCE for the Jews of Alexandria, who already did not know Hebrew well anymore, but as soon as Christians adopted it, the Jews dropped it, so the Old Testament, for all intents and purposes, is from the Greek. It was later translated into Latin by Jerome, but by the time he translated it, trying to go back to the Hebrew at times, there were certain parts that were already known a certain way in Latin, even though it may not be a good translation, it could not be changed. Finally, what books are included and their order are different. Later, Luther rid the collection of some of the books so that what is in the Bible depends not just on one's religion, but one's denomination. Uh, this is true even to the extent as to how to break up the Ten Commandments, and how anybody gets ten out of those is beyond me. And I read it in the original. Okay, finally, the Old Testament and Christianity, originally and again later with Luther, is only important or is most important when revealing how it points to the new. Through that lens, the New Testament has a few comments upon both Sarah and Hagar that clarifies for me why a Christian feminist might not be as thrilled with Sarah as I. First, Sarah's barren state is not used to contextualize Sarah, but Abraham. In Romans 4.19, Paul mentions Sarah as proof of how faithful Abraham is. My Jewish feminist go Sarah and get it done is not a good thing, but Abraham's faith Paul suggesting that, of course, that is what his actions suggests, is the good thing. 
It also suggests why scholars in the field of biblical studies, mostly white, male, and Protestant, maybe never noticed that Abraham's actions in e Egypt and Gerar put Sarah at great risk without a backup plan, possibly in defiance of the deity's wishes. Oh, oops, I hate it when that happens. So, both Abraham and Sarah make it onto the list of faithful in Hebrews 11. And here again, there is a distinction between the role of certain theological notions within different religious traditions. In Christianity, faith is likely the most defining characteristic. According to the Ankle Bible Dictionary, the article on faith is broken up into three articles, one for the Hebrew Bible, one for the New Testament, and one just for the term faith in Christ. In the introduction for the article of faith in the Old Testament, it states, quote, faith is a peculiarly Christian concept. While other religious traditions have aspects of what the, church, what the churches have come to name faith, none has the specific quality of intellectual assent that distinguishes this from fidelity, end quote. And for the, for the introduction to the topic in the New Testament, it states, in the New Testament, faith belongs to the terms of self-definition of what is Christianity, end quote. Thus, when Paul uses the terminology of faith to describe actions, he is Christianizing Abraham and applying a lens to the actions of both Abraham and Sarah that may or may not originally have been there. Once Paul does so, within a Christian, within a Christian worldview, that is the only lens. In 1 Peter 3.6, Sarah's role becomes problematic for many Christian feminists. This text uses Sarah as an example of holy women who trust in the Godhead by subjecting themselves to their husbands. Proof of this here is the claim that Sarah obeys Abraham by calling him Lord. The only place the text could possibly be referencing is Genesis 18.12, when Sarah overhears the messengers telling her that she is going to have a child and she laughs to herself. There, she refers to Abraham as Adoni, my lord, but it could also be translated, my husband. Note a slight irony here, because I suggested earlier that in this case, Sarah is excited that she is going to have pleasure, because the term references sexual pleasure. The previous sentence uh, notes Sarah had uh, already stopped having periods, but in this verse, she is not concerned about herself, but uh, wonders if she, uh, uh, about herself, but wonders if she's going to have pleasure, quote, and with my husband, Peter's Lord, so old, end quote. One other note is that uh, definitely in the book of Genesis and possibly all over the Hebrew Bible, when a woman refers to a man, either to his face or when he is not there, by the term Lord, her words can easily be interpreted as sarcasm. In fact, I might argue that the authors of the New Testament noticed that, and by providing this interpretation, shut down any discussion that it could mean anything else. So I would suggest that the New Testament actually intentionally shifts the meaning to serve a purpose not originally intended by the Hebrew Bible, thereby forever changing Sarah's character, at least in Christianity. The last reference is difficult because of its anti-Semitic potential, but in light of recent events this year, even on or especially on Mother's Day, we must address it. Galatians 4, 21 through 31 discusses Jews, and we don't come off that well. Along the way, it discusses the relationship between Sarah and Hagar, and in 4.30, quotes from the Hebrew Bible directly, Genesis 21.10, which is Sarah's declaration to Abraham, the son of that slave shall not inherit with my son. 
What the New Testament does is associate Hagar with slaves and Sarah with free people, the New Jerusalem, and Christianity. The result is to identify the free with those in the present audience um, who rely on God's promise, i.e. faith, and Hagar and her children with those enslaved to the law, likely Judaizers within the church. Some other odd things then happen to the characters. While the way slavery was conducted in this country is different than in the ancient Near East, because many slaves in this country were converted to Christianity, the usage of slavery terminology in both New and Old Testaments was used by African slaves and ironically, their slave owners. Somewhere, somehow, not quite sure exactly how this happens, um, Sarah becomes associated with white slave-owning types and Hagar with women of color. I get that part. While that part's not as hard to see, um, despite Galatians making Sarah Christian and Hagar Jewish, in the U.S. context, beginning sometime in the late 1970s, early 80s, for purposes of understanding the relationship of Hagar and Sarah in the Hebrew Bible, Sarah becomes Jewish again and Hagar Christian. Thus, Sarah is now a Jewish slave-owning abuser of Christian women of color. The situation gets even more complicated with the influx of Muslims into this country and the academy in general because both Sarah and Hagar appear as important characters in Islam, but again, because of a different set of presumptions, the characterization of these women shifts again. Islam does not incorporate the New Testament or Hebrew Bible into their scripture per se, but recognizes all of the important characters in those books as important prophets and players in the religion and world. In the Hebrew Bible Old Testament, Abraham is considered the father of Ishmael, who is recognized as the father of the Arab people in some capacity by the Arabs and now Muslims, keeping in mind not all Arabs are Muslims and not all Muslims are Arabs. Um, ironically enough, while one might expect Sarah to be a negative character in Islam, since in the Hebrew Bible she is responsible for banishing Hagar, where she then gets lost and almost dies along with her son in the wilderness, such is not the case. In fact, the Hajarah, part of the Hajj um, pilgrimage for um, Muslims to Mecca, entails them running back and forth between two hills. This is considered to be an honor and a replication of Hagar searching for water in the desert. Despite the importance of Hagar in Muslim tradition, and even in the Hajj, her name does not even appear in the Quran. Further complicating things, Sarah is not negatively depicted in Islam. In fact, Sarah and or Zara, same name, are popular Muslim names. The reality is that in Islam, it is legal to have multiple wives. A society still practicing polygamy well recognizes the problems associated with multiple wives, jealousies that ensue, and the relationship of such sons to each other. Thus, in Islam, the entire situation is cast differently. My mantra to my students is that life is hard, and the characters in the Hebrew Bible narratives are trying to figure out how to survive and what is the right way to behave in a complicated world. I think it is fair to say that the world has not become any less complicated as time has progressed. What issues are the hard ones may have changed slightly, but in general, there is nothing new under the sun. What is also the same is that depending on the lens one uses to determine one's worldview will contribute to how one sees a character or theology or situation. 
I use the character of, Hagar, of Sarah, and by extension, Hagar, to show that just because we often can be talking about the same thing, character, religion, theology, we can talk past each other, but does not mean that we must do so. Digging a little deeper and understanding the starting place of others around us can help us to actually speak to each other rather than past each other. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, exactly. Thirty minutes, exactly. Yeah. So now we want to open it up for Q and A um, and give uh, you an opportunity to kind of process with uh, Dr. Schneider uh, what was discussed. A lot was offered. Uh, a lot, lots of content there. Great stuff. Um, but does anybody have any have any questions or perhaps comments uh, for Dr. Schneider today? And uh, this is on the podcast, so we'll bring the uh, the mic around. Yeah, Jason. I just had one thing. You said something that I really liked uh, when you were talking about the Christian definition of faith and how I think what you said was previously or in the Hebrew context, it's more um, uh, conceptualized as fidelity, which is an act or it's a, you know holding on to something, uh, which is a lot different from the Christian faith just believing in something intellectually. I thought that was really nice. I like using the word fidelity for faith. That's a good one. Yeah, me too. I picked up on that. Um, do you want to comment at all? So th thank you, um, because that one's a really tricky one. And um, in the modern world, um, people often talk about inner faith, right? Instead of, I use the term inner religious, and I actually did a study on it once. And inner faith doesn't appear in dictionaries until I think it's the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. And, um, and, and when people use, I call it the F word, um, because what faith means for a Christian is different than what it means necessarily for um, a Jewish person or a Muslim, right? Where the, the range of um, what constitutes the religion is different. So for Christians, um, faith is sort of the most important. For Jews, it's action, and Islam, it's right in the middle, right? So um, the definition of a Muslim is a person born of a Muslim father or someone who says, the sh who says the shahada out loud in Arabic and means it, right? And that gives you that sort of, and so understanding what matters to any religious group is gonna help situate what they think are the important um, aspects uh, of a situation. Yeah, and, but I like fidelity better than other words that get thrown around. Mm -hmm. well, somebody else. Yes, Tom. You mentioned uh, that some of the translation issues that the New Testament writers, the New Testament community would have when reading the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and uh, just something I hadn't thought of before and thought about the ways that they may be dealing with those issues. Are there any other sort of major trends or major sort of misunderstandings that you found that the Christian, early Christian community had of the Hebrew text?
So every week in my, um, I teach every semester a class, um, women in the book of fill in the blank. And what we do in class is the students in my class who know Hebrew, they read the verse out loud in Hebrew and translate as close to the original Hebrew as possible. And the people in the class who don't know Hebrew, they have to read the text in two different translations every week and find five places where the translations differ, um, and then they have to go and figure out what's behind one of those. The point being that every word has a range of meaning in every language, right? And so a, there was one week where they had trouble finding five places, which was weird in and of itself. Um, I think it was like, was it Jezebel maybe? Or Atalia, anyway, it was somebody that no one had ever heard of anyway. Um, and, so, um, and so it's not just, um, that uh, so and every language is radically different so the Semitic language doesn't have a large vocabulary and um, you have these three root letters and then what you do to those three root letters changes it from active to passive whatever or, or even from a verb to a noun so words can be connected in a way that they can't be in other languages so then the question becomes how do you convey that and how do you convey these different um, notions when you when Hebrew has a limited vocabulary. So I'll do two biggies. One, the word Adam um, is connected to the word for blood, which is dam, and connected to the word for earth, which is adama. They're all the same word. They're all the same root, and therefore there's an interconnection between humanity, blood, and the earth that you can't you can't explain in English, but you don't even have to explain it in Hebrew. Um, the other is, um, oh, there's so many, which one do I pick? Um, there's um, a word in Hebrew that um, is um, the sign that the following um, issue is a, a, a plea, right? It's a, a particle that suggests that what you're about to say is a, um, um, a request. The difference between, and so I translated it as, please. Um, this is a good one because it's Mother's Day. Um, and the difference between adding the na and not adding the na is the difference between a command and a request. And there's a whole bunch of places where, for example, when Abraham asks Sarah to say she is his sister in chapter 12, he says na like three times. He's like begging, right? Um, and there are places where it, it where it isn't there, it looks like somebody's demanding something. And um, the reason why this is particularly relevant on Mother's Day is when my kids tell me to do something, I'm like, what? Um, when they say please, then it changes the whole conversation, right? Um, and so those are just two little places where everything, um, everything changes. And for example, the, uh, another one that I kind of referenced is, um, Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham, Isha Lolisha, which can mean a woman for a wife, a woman for a woman, a wife for a woman in marriage, right? Like any of those are possibilities. And it's hard to know which one it actually means because the word for wife and the word for woman are the same, right? And so there are places where the biblical text is making play on words and, and toying with that notion that you just can't do it into English, not because English is a bad language, just because every language is different, right? And then... Um, 
all over the place. So um, in particular, the big one that everyone talks about is Isaiah. Um, does it mean a young woman or is it a virgin? Right? That's a huge one. Um, and um, the list goes on and on and on and on. Um, and then there is the whole translation notion is ironic because you have the Septuagint and you have a few, um, there's a huge debate um, about whether the so when does the when does the biblical text get finalized, right? So the New Testament doesn't really get finalized until the fifth century CE, and even then it's kind of iffy. So there's this one point where an emperor asks for he needs 50 copies of the New Testament, and they're like, well, well, which which one, which version? And it's like I don't know. I just need them right away. So they just like send out, and it doesn't even matter because. Um, another thing I didn't talk about, but the, the New Testament is is the good news, right? It's not it's it's not what the text says, but that it stands for the whole notion of Jesus, right? So that what the text actually says is less important than what it gets people to do, right? Which is believe in Christ. For, for the Hebrew Bible, for Jewish people, it's very different, right? And so that's why even the, um, um, how careful the text is in translation is different. That's why Jews don't translate it. Um, so when we read um, the, the Torah in um, temple on Saturdays, right? You read it from a scroll and you read it in Hebrew and you have a person standing next to the person reading it and if you make a mis if the person reading the scroll makes a mistake, they're corrected because you can't make a mistake because it's, it's, it's Torah, right? Whereas in Christianity, the New Testament doesn't carry that kind of um, the specific the specificity of the language is a little bit less important than the message. Does that make sense? Um, and so there's a, there's a gazillion of them. And every week in class, we come up with another five. So it's, it's amazing. Um, and again, the subtlety of language is, is, is huge. You know, even um, saying please or not saying please. Um, translating Adon as Lord or husband, right? They mean the same, you know, depending on the context. And some translator decides, and you don't even know what the options are. Yes, Emily. Um, I was just wondering if you might be able to provide maybe to Aaron that can then get disseminated, like maybe some resources for that, like maybe some that are less academic. You know, I know a lot of people here went to seminary, but not most of us didn't. And like for me, I'm a scientist person, so it's, you know, a little overwhelming sometimes. Um, but I'm interested in in learning more about translation and the differences between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament and um, would just be interested. I mean, I'm, you know, you sitting here right now listing them off is not going to probably be helpful for a lot of us, but, um, you know, maybe getting something like that, including probably your works in there, and that would be great. So I was curious for your perspective on whether Abraham's actions in these stories, would that have been somewhat conventional at the time or either, you know, for the audience that the text was originally intended? Or would that have been shocking even then, you know, to consign your wife to a, a harem and all the rest of it?
That's a really good question. Um, uh, so, um, so many ways to answer that, um, and you guys have to get home eventually. So, um, on the one hand, the the episode in Egypt really annoys me because. Um, there's only one other ancient king in the entire ancient Near East that we know of um, in any capacity who gave his, um, who killed some man in order to marry his wife. And do you know who that is? Yeah, it's David. Um, there's no ancient Near Eastern records of men being afraid to go to foreign countries because their wife is so beautiful that a man's going to take her and kill him. It's just David, right? So that particular episode is hugely problematic, and I would argue there's no other place where that specific thing happens. Ironically enough, um, in my research, no one before me has ever noticed that, right? Like, no one writes about it. Now, they maybe know about it, but la, 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 it's Abraham, we can't talk about it, hear no evil, see no evil, right? We're not going to go there. As far as some of the other things that he does, um, not so crazy, right? So, the idea of, well, Maybe that's a lie too. So we don't have a whole bunch of people in the ancient Near East where we hear that some um, deity gives them a bunch of land um, for the future, right? That's that's new. Um, we um, sacrificing your son. Um, it, it's not a great thing. We have sons sacrificed um, in other. Um, ancient Near Eastern traditions, um, and the Phoenicians apparently did that, and so did some Jordanian groups. Um, uh, so there's just a, a, some funny things, um, but in general, having multiple wives, having children from multiple wives, um, having a, um, a militia, your own personal militia, um, those aren't rare things. Um, and so there are aspects of Abraham that do resonate and don't. Um, again, because I have so many issues with Abraham, when people talk about Abrahamic religions, I go, no, not that. Um, um, and yet it is a connective tissue. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It could be answered multiple ways. I, w I was wondering if you could speak to your take on kind of the, the prominence, the prevalence of women's voices in the Jewish tradition as compared perhaps to the Christian tradition and your familiarity with that and the differences therein. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so um, there are a lot of cultural stereotypes about Jewish women um, and um, we're loud, we're bossy, we're overprotective of our children. And I don't understand why those are bad things. So... Um, <laughs> My mom's one of those, I am one of those, um, and so I know that they are considered, you know, caricatures and therefore bad, um, but the notion that you would fight for your kid, right, the reason that all the Disney moms are dead is this notion that if your mom is dead, you have no one protecting you, and that's why they fall into some of these situations, but if you have a strong, loudmouth, overprotective mother, that's not going to happen to you, right? Right. <laughs> I'm just saying, right? And that's why, um, for example, um, Esther, right? Esther is a Disney princess, right? She has no family, right? She gets, uh, she is at risk. Um, and her looks gain her a prince, and you can argue how well that goes because she has no children. 
um, and in Judaism, not having any children is like is 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 horrible. You, everybody wants children. You're supposed to want children, um, and so. Um, I can't remember now what the oh so Jewish women so um, so there is um, so I get that the Hebrew Bible is a patriarchal text okay whatever patriarchy means and I get that women aren't always in the best situation in that environment but I also know categorically that a lot of the texts where um, where you have women um, they are there to lift up a um, women often do the right thing, B, they're the foundation of everything going on, and C, when women are mistreated, bad things happen to society writ large. So, um, and um, another student in our class, um, who's a rabbi, um, the other day said he can't think of a single, you know, we were trying to come up with an example in the Hebrew Bible where, um, where the woman kind of didn't wear the the pants and the family on some level and that that was a bad thing, right? So this notion of, you know, we all have different responsibilities and women are in charge of the children and children are the foundation of everything is, is, a, is, a, huge, um, is a huge deal. Um, the other thing that um, is that um, Hebrew is a gendered language, so everything is either masculine or feminine. There's no gender neutral, um, and so you can't say it, right? So everything is gendered, but you know this table and this floor are either masculine or feminine, right? Um, and so there are masculine and feminine ways of referring to, to the deity. In, in Christianity, when the deity is a guy, um, there's, there's no way around that, right? Um, and so it, it complicates things a little bit further, which Judaism doesn't have that problem. And so you can even view the deity in more feminine terms pretty easily. Um, and I also argue that in Genesis in particular, um, the mothers are the ones who decide the, um, who inherits the promise, which then sets the scene for everything to come. So all of the men have more than one child, but who their mother of those children are, are always, um, the, the mother's the one, or and what the mother does and or who the mother is that generates that. And then in the book of the first chapter, fast chapters of Exodus, it's the women who get Moses to the place where you can have that historical shifting moment, right? Which is when the relationship between um, what becomes the Jewish people and their deity gets established, right? And all of that's done by women. Um, and so there is a, I would argue, a foundation, a textual foundation for that, even if it's not always um, highlighted. Yeah, I, I think so. And f what I'm hearing is that there's much more of a prominent female voice um, within the Jewish tradition, I feel like, with the, compared to the Christian tradition. Because you even began with that joke about how Jewish women are stereotyped a certain way, but it's actually seen as a good thing. Because when in my context growing up in, you know, evangelical church, you know, a bossy, loud woman was not a good thing right? Women were supposed to be subservient to men. And especially if you were a pastor, your wife was to be virtually like just seen and not heard pretty much. Um, that strikes me as very different compared to Christianity and Judaism. You would, you would agree probably. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fascinating to me. Yeah. All right. Well, um, 
Anybody else have anything else they'd like to raise or talk about before we conclude? <clears throat> thank you so much for being here today. Yes, thank you, thank you.